I felt like one of those uh, ancient artists commissioned to chisel out a magnificent column, a pillar of great multitude. But in truth, I was actually paying for the class. Art 120. I was a senior at California Lutheran University, and I needed to fulfill an art requirement in order to graduate. And so I took a look at the list of classes that were being offered that particular semester. History of art, snooze. Watercoloring, eh, boring. Sketching, eh. Life drawing, naked people, no thanks. Sculpture, sure, why not? I walk into the studio and there's this mad scientist looking dude with snow white electroshocked hair. Turns out he's my professor. Also turns out he's some famous Russian artist. Our task for the semester, transform this large lump of clay into the bust, into the head and shoulders of someone dear to us. Easy enough, right? You know, I'm artistic after all. Shouldn't be too difficult. Sculpt the bust of someone dear to us. I figure I'd just do myself. But then I remember the most lovely, dearest love of my life, Tara Elise Gillespie. Man, is she a keeper or what? You heard about the, the guy she married, though. Oh, man. He's like, I heard he's like some GQ model, passionate, eloquent, brilliant. I could talk about him all day. Like, we grew up together. Like, we're best friends since the beginning. So I, I pinned up a, a few pictures of the dearest, most lovely love of my life right next to this large lump of clay. And then the magic begins. My hands start to shape and transform and sculpt this lump of clay into a masterpiece. And uh, about two or three weeks later, I'm there just perfecting the finishing touches smoothing out a ripple of her hair here, defining her irises a little more there, when out of the corner of my eye, I see snow-white, electroshocked hair drawing near. Turns out it's my professor. Turns out uh, he's some famous Russian artist. Also turns out he's not so politically correct. He looks at my masterpiece, and then he looks at her picture. He looks at my masterpiece, and then he looks at her picture. And I'll give you the censored, politically correct-ish version of what he said. Which continent is she from? All of them? Is she female? How many times are you gonna Botox her lips? Her forehead looks like a five head, her neck like a linebacker. Her chin like a villain, her hair like Medusa. So needless to say, it's back to the large lump of clay. 
but with the assistance of this mad scientist-looking, not-so-politically-correct-ish professor of mine, in a couple weeks' time, we've got her looking at least human again. And then it's on to the next stages, the plaster of Paris and bronzing and chiseling and then patina. And there she is in all her glory, finished masterpiece. When I show it to Tara, when I reveal it, unveil it for her, she wears one of those faces that parents wear, you know, when their kid brings them like finger painting, like, oh, yeah, wow, great job. Really love it. So nice of you to do that. And in that moment, I realized something. I realized that it's defective. It looks nothing like her. And also in that moment, I realized something else, that it might be a little strange or weird or awkward for her to have a ghoulish, defective-looking representation of her haunting her closet or her desk or her bedstand. The truth is, it's defective. So the only place for it is to roll around in the trunk of my pimped out 1997 Forest Green Honda Accord DX Edition. And there it spent the remainder of its days rolling around in a trunk full of books and soggy, smelly wetsuits until it finally found rest at last in peace in a dumpster, defective. The first century churches that we've been exploring in the book of Revelation sure seem defective. Not all of them, but most. It's like, there they are, rolling around defective in a trunk littered with sexual sin, idolatry, and faithlessness, ready and ripe for the dumpster. But as we read about these defective churches over the course of our Dear Church sermon series, may we be a different story. May we take it to heart to have a heart to heart with our own lives and our own values so that we may be a different story. And I think the first step in realizing this, in being effective as a church, is to proclaim and live out our memory verse for this sermon series. So if you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand and we'll read our memory verse, Colossians 1, 17 through 18a. This is talking about Jesus. So let's read these words aloud together. He is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. And in light of all of the defective churches that we've been exploring, today is a different story. Today, it's all about the church at Philadelphia and how to be effective. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and we want to hear from you. We want to learn how to be effective in our lives and as a church. I pray, Jesus, you speak to each of us in a personal way where we need you and where we can find you in our lives. Speak to us loudly, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead, grab a seat.
Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, not to be confused with the home of the Phillies, the Flyers, the 76ers, the Eagles, and cheesesteaks. No, we're talking about the OG, the original gangster city of brotherly love, ancient Near Eastern Philadelphia. Known as the door to Asia Minor, it was effectively the border between two regions on the main highway. And once you passed through Philadelphia on your way out west, you just entered into the province of Asia Minor, what we would call today Western Turkey. It was the home of ancient king Attalus II, who was known for his deep loyalty to his bro. So much so, they gave him a new name, Philadelphus, which means loyal to his brother. The city named after him was positioned on a fertile plateau there in western Turkey near the base of some snowy mountains. But beneath those snowy mountains and beneath that fertile plain was a mess of tectonic plates. So that means lots of earthquakes. And there in the first century, in the year 17 AD, a major earthquake completely leveled the city. The civil engineers proved to be defective in their building. The structural integrity of their construction, defective. As the people of Philadelphia then sifted through the rubble in search of their lost loved ones, a new reality shook their foundations. First of all, the city was unsafe. The buildings were reduced to rubble or left teetering. So the people, in fear, they moved outside the city to live. The city was also renamed. To help with the rebuild, the Roman emperor at the time named Tiberius Caesar, he said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to cut the taxes on you Philadelphians for five years in order to help with your rebuilding. Sounds so generous, right? So great. But the only problem is now you get to rename yourselves Neo-Caesarea. That's your, your new name as a city, which means New Caesar. And then under a later emperor named Vespasian of the Flavian dynasty, Philadelphia yet again gets renamed Philadelphia Flavia. And then after Emperor Vespasian comes Titus. And after Titus comes an emperor named Domitian. One of the struggles that sprouted for this ancient Roman emperor Domitian was the empire's lack of grain production. It crippled the Roman economy, widespread, no grain. And so in 92 AD, in an effort to curb this, an effort to replenish the grain shortage, Domitian decreed that in the provinces, at least half of the vineyards be uprooted and replaced with grain fields. Sounds effective, right? Only problem was Philadelphia was a province, a province with a strong wine industry, a province with a strong wine industry that was now uprooted and replaced by grain fields that only grew defective grain. So as you can imagine, Domitian's decree in 92 AD went over real well with the people of Philadelphia. But then comes this letter from John of Patmos 
in Revelation, perhaps three years later. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 3, verse 7. Write this to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. These are the words of the one who is holy. That means sacred or set apart. These are the words of the one who is holy and true. That's real and genuine. We're talking about Jesus here. Who has the key of David. The key is a symbol of authority. And the fact that Jesus holds this key means that he has authority over the whole royal household. Whatever he opens, no one will shut, and whatever he shuts, no one opens. And now that would come in real handy with baby Zeke right now. He's at this stage where he's crawling everywhere, and uh, it's not so much like a tortoise, you know, slow and steady wins the race. Instead, he's like the silverback gorilla just bounding across the house to meet me there in the kitchen. He's, he's rumbling all through the house where his new favorite toys are, the drawers and cabinets. I'll be there in the kitchen. I'll be flipping him some pancakes because he's just like a bottomless pit, just eats and eats and eats, as you might be able to tell. Uh, and I'm flipping him pancakes, and all of a sudden, he'll outstretch one of his hands with all those you know, chubby Vienna sausage fingers, and he'll wrap them around the, the handle to a drawer, but ha-ha, I've got my foot pressed up against it shut. But then like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, he pivots like the speed of light to the open dishwasher behind him. And it takes every ounce of dad in me to maintain the splits, keeping my foot pressed up against the drawer, and then roundhouse kick the open dishwasher closed before he can stretch his hand in there, those chubby Vienna sausage fingers, and snatch a knife. You know, in some circles, that's called being a hero. In others, that's just called bad parenting. Defective. I mean, who baby proofs after all, right? But apparently, Jesus has heroic dad like abilities too. Because whatever he opens, no one will shut, and whatever he shuts, no one opens. This means that Jesus has God's full authority full authority to save, to judge. It means he has all the, all the distribution, whether he wants to distribute or not, according to his will, Jesus has it. Verse 8a says, I know your works. Look, I have set in front of you an open door that no one can shut. A rather fitting line written to the church, effectively known as the open door or the door to Asia Minor. The opportunity for sharing Jesus and living for Jesus was like an open, unshuttable door for them, for the Philadelphia Christians. And isn't it just the same for us? I mean, here and now, no one's going to lock us up and throw away the key for living for Jesus and sharing Jesus. I mean, it would seem rather defective for us not to share Jesus and not to live for Jesus in light of this open door that has been placed in front of us, right? 
I mean, no one's going to lock us up and throw away the key. And if, if they do, if it comes to that, if they lock us up and throw away the key, let us not forget who holds the key of David. And that whatever he opens, no one will shut. And whatever he shuts, no one will open. There's no baby-proofing latches or straps or nets or gates to shut this open door. So let's take advantage of that and do some damage to the kingdom of darkness by the way that we share our lives and live for Jesus. Verse 8b says, you have so little power and yet you have kept my word. You, you've obeyed what I've said. You followed the scriptures. You've lived for me. You have kept my word and haven't denied my name. The context speaks of a time when the Philadelphia Christians were being harassed or challenged to deny their faith in Jesus. They were of so little power. That means that perhaps they were few in number. Perhaps they were a voiceless minority. Perhaps they struggled socially and politically under the Roman imperial power. Perhaps their city was prone to destruction by earthquake. Perhaps their vineyards were uprooted and their finances lost. Perhaps they didn't have the fancy facilities. Perhaps they weren't a megachurch puffing themselves up over how filled their seats are, or how successful their events are, or how loaded their budgets might be. Perhaps it was all of this and more. But thank God they didn't take themselves too seriously. But instead, they took their God seriously. And for such reason, they were effective. I thank God that we here at Journey don't take ourselves too seriously. Because if we did, we might be put to shame or dismayed. I mean, let's just take a look at the facts. Let's take a look at the facts of Journey. First of all, we meet in a grimy, leaky community center, which we love. It is an upgrade from the hot Cheetos and Gushers smashed into the carpet of the Boys and Girls Club where we were a couple of years back. But secondly, you know, one of our pastors has a criminal record. I won't name any names. Another can't golf to save his life. And I mean, that's like a prerequisite of being a pastor. Again, I won't name any names. Our children's director is almost as tall as our junior high students. <laughs> almost, but not yet. Our office is split between a busy music academy and perhaps maybe, let's pray for it, some open chairs at Starbucks. And our fallback plan is, well, we, actually, we actually don't have a fallback plan. <laughs> It's God or bust. It's loving the world one person at a time or nothing. But we take our God seriously because he has done amazing, great things in our community. And it's all because of his love. You know, they will know that we are Christians by our love, not by our light shows or lavish facilities or our laundry list of ministries. No, they will know that we are Christians by our love. And when you take God seriously, 
And when you take his love seriously, and when you keep his word seriously, and when you don't deny his name seriously, I think that's how to be effective. I think that's how to be effective. You keep his word and you don't deny his name. That's what makes the people of God so effective. That's what makes the church effective. It continues, Jesus says in verses 9 through 10, because of this, because of your effectiveness in keeping his word and not denying his name, I will make the people from Satan's synagogue who say they are Jews but really aren't, but are lying. That's talking about those who oppose the people of God. They are not true believers. They are just pretenders who actually belong to the club of Satan. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and realize that I have loved you. Because you kept my command to endure, I will keep you safe through the time of testing that is about to come over the whole world to test those who live on earth. Here, testing seems to refer to this end time suffering that will affect the whole world, what some like to call the tribulation. And while some like to argue about the the when or the why or the how of all of this, I think it's actually most appropriate to talk about the what. Like, what do I do? No matter what may come, tribulation, denomination, modification, complication, aspiration, speculation, Jesus is victorious. Jesus holds the key, and Jesus has set before us an open door for sharing Jesus and living for Jesus. So be effective and keep his word and don't deny his name. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. In ancient Koine Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, there are two words for crown. The first is diadema. It's like the word that we have today for diadem. It refers to the royal headgear. Not the kind that my sister wore in third grade to school because of her teeth, but more like what a king wears to display his power. But that's not what this verse is talking about. It's not a kingly crown. Instead, it's Stephanos, which is what verse 11 is talking about. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your Stephanos. That's the wreath of foliage, like plants, leaves, and stuff. You know, maybe you go to some weddings today and girls are wearing all this, you know, stuff in their hair. You know, they, they like to do that. But this goes back to ancient Greece and, and ancient Rome. And here the Stephanos, a wreath of foliage or also of precious medals. It was awarded to the victors of the famous athletic games, especially like those famously held in Philadelphia. It's the kind that gets promised throughout the New Testament to those who overcome, to those who conquer. Jesus tells them, hold on to what you have. Hold on to your faith, your truth, your identity as an overcomer so that no one takes your Stephanos, so no one takes your victory, so no one takes your crown. An interesting thing about this when it comes to this Stephanos, this crown, no one's going to take your crown unless you take it off and forget about it and lose it somewhere, right? Or they outrun you in a race. But we're not competing against each other. We're competing for the glory and kingdom of God. So don't take off that crown and don't give up. Verse 12 continues, 
As for those who emerge victorious, that is those who are effective by keeping his word and not by denying his name, I will make them pillars in the temple of my God and they will never leave it. There is an annual tradition in uh, the temples that were devoted to worshiping the Roman emperor in the ancient world. It was called the Roman imperial cult, where once a year the high priest of this particular temple would set up a statue of himself right there in the temple. Not the bust, the head and shoulders of someone near and dear to him, but of himself. And it would have there on the statue his name, his birthplace, and his years of office etched in stone, eternally enduring. That is, until an earthquake turned it and its temple into rubble. Whereas the temples of Philadelphia were prone to destruction by earthquake, the temple of God is effectively indestructible, its foundation immovable, and those who are victorious will be its pillars, symbols of strength. Verses 12b through 13 close out this letter to Philadelphia. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on them my own new name. If you can hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches in deliberate contrast to a city that is constantly getting a new name from tyrants and egomaniacs, Jesus tells them, to you who emerge victorious, to you who are effective by keeping my word and not denying my name, I will write on you God's name, God's city, and my new name. In the ancient world and still today, when you write your name on something, that indicates Ownership. It's the one thing I forgot to do on that defective head and shoulders statue of Tara. But when I think about it, after all, who wants to take ownership of what is defective? But if you emerge victorious, and this is not just for the Philadelphia Christians, this is for us today. If you emerge victorious, if you are effective by keeping his word and not denying his name, and if Jesus, just as he says, will write God's name, God's city, and his new name on you, that certainly means that there are some things that are true about you. And the first one is, you are not defective. You are not defective. And guess what? Your sin doesn't own you. Your guilt does not own you. Your shame doesn't own you. Your fear doesn't own you. Your disappointment doesn't own you. Your failure doesn't own you. Your past doesn't own you. In the ancient world, pillars often bore the names of their conquerors. They're etched in stone and with God's name and God's city and Jesus's new name etched on you. That means God has conquered and God owns you. He has defeated you in your rebellion. He has conquered you in your sin. He has welcomed you in. He has completely invited you. That means you belong. Not defective and rolling around in a trunk, ready and ripe for the dumpster. 
but belonging to God, an enduring pillar in the effectively immovable, indestructible temple of God. So then the question is, how then can we be effective? How can we be effective? How can we shape and mold and sculpt our lives so that we may be people who keep his word and not deny his name? You know, I'm tired of my life looking like a defective representation of Jesus. I'm sick of the church looking like a misshapen sculpture. A sad display of how beautiful the bride of Christ is supposed to be. I want to be a different story. When my not-so-politically-correct-ish mad scientist of a professor realized that my masterpiece did not match up, that it was defective, he did something amazing there, there in the art studio. And I, I was excited because he put his own hands to the clay, and I watched him as he did this. I watched him very closely. I wanted to find out the secret of his ways of the expert, to see what he would do. And this is what he did. He looked straight at the picture. For quite a while. Looked straight at the picture. And without blinking, without breaking his gaze, looking straight at the picture, he put his hands to the clay. And without breaking his gaze, without blinking... Within 30 seconds, he molds and shapes the clay into something not subhuman, but humane again. When we run the race that is laid out in front of us, when we throw off any extra baggage and the sin that so easily trips us up, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, I think that's how we can be effective. I think that's how the church at Philadelphia was effective. I think that's how you and I here today can be effective by keeping his word and not denying his name. At least that's what the New Testament author of Hebrews writes. Hebrews 12, one through two. So then let's also run the race that is laid out in front of us. Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's throw off any extra baggage, get rid of the sin that trips us up and fix our eyes on Jesus. That means to look away from all else and look distinctly, directly, unblinkingly at Jesus, faith's pioneer and perfecter. He endured the cross, ignoring the shame for the sake of the joy that was laid out in front of him and sat down at the right side of God's throne. When you and I learn to look away from everything else and look directly distinctly, unblinkingly at Jesus, our lives will be shaped and molded and sculpted so that we bring glory to his name and we keep his word. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you are in the business of making old things new, broken things repaired, and that, Lord, while we may feel defective today in our walk with you and our lives, 
where we just don't feel right, I pray, Lord, that you would do your work on us. You would move and shape and transform us in ways we need it. Where there's doubt and fear, where there's hatred and failure, I pray, Lord, that you would move that out of the way. Create it into something beautiful. Jesus, I pray today for people who want to experience you for the first time. They want to open up their heart to the God who says, you're not defective. You're not junk. I made you. I knit you together in your mother's womb and you are beautiful and wonderfully created because I created you. I pray they would, they would invite you into their hearts today. I pray in Jesus, would you come in? I believe you died on the cross for all that stuff, all my sin, my shame, my wrongdoing, my guilt, my fear, my failure. You died on the cross for me. So come into my life. You rose from the grave. You're not a dead God, a distant God. You're here, you're now, you're, you're with us. Show me how to live. Show me how to walk with you all the days of my life. I pray, Lord Jesus, we would be effective as a church who listens to you and focuses on you so that we may be pillars standing firm on your unshakable ground. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.